The scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. Luke 15, verses 1 to 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. This parable, the parable of the shepherd seeking out the lost sheep, uh, in it Jesus is illustrating some of the qualities of the good shepherd, but in the telling of it, he is also functioning as the good shepherd because he is shepherding in that instance those people around him, correcting them, guiding them, directing them to truth. This parable, really the parable of the seeking shepherd is a set of three parables that Jesus tells. And these parables are a specific, a very targeted response of Jesus to a group of people there. Prior to this, Jesus has been actively ministering, going about his ministry. He is healing, he is teaching, he's praying, he's sitting down for supper with people. Um, he is shepherding people. And that function, that ministry is compelling. And so there's people who are attracted. There's a magnetic quality about who Jesus is. And so crowds are gathering around him. They're following him, both the religious and the respectable people and the irreligious, the sinners, the marginalized are all gathering around Jesus. And we read now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees, the teachers of the lost, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And we see here this, this pretty much repeated cycle, this pattern that goes on in the ministry of Jesus, that Jesus is with those who are on the edge or beyond the edge of respectability. It is the repeated pattern of Jesus' life and ministry, and it offended the religious um, all those who, estranged, who were estranged from religion, they, they were attracted, but all the respectable, uh, they were offended by this of Jesus. And so we read the tax collectors and sinners were the people gathering around Jesus. They were compelled. They, these were people who were not following the moral laws of the day, 
uh, of the Bible. They did not follow the ceremonial purity laws followed by most of the religious people. You can imagine who those might be if we contemporize them today, right? I don't have to say anything. You can fill your mind with that. These are all the free spirits, people who do their own thing. The relativists, the rebels, the reactionaries. Don't tell me how to live my life. But they're attracted to Jesus. They'd be the people who say, I'm not really into church, but I like Jesus. They found in him the good shepherd a source of guidance that they couldn't trust anywhere else, but they could trust in him. I read that, and I wonder about us as a community. Where are the tax collectors and sinners this morning? Look around you, okay? Do you see them? Go ahead, take a look. We're a really well-dressed, respectable group of people here, aren't we? We need to ask ourselves, why is it that the kind of outsiders that Jesus regularly attracted are not drawn to our contemporary church services? Why is it that the prodigals and the broken and the marginalized find it very easy to avoid church? What is it about the Christian faith that we are either living or communicating that doesn't sound like good news to them. Have we, have we become functional Pharisees? Jesus regularly attracted those beyond the pale of respectability, and this phenomenon it just angered the religious people of the day. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law we read, they just couldn't believe it, couldn't countenance. And you sense this contempt, Right? This muttering, this man welcomes sinners and, and he eats with them. Now, right away as we read this, I, I want us to do a little course correction because we need to change some of our assumptions about the Pharisees. The Pharisees in the Bible are not the villains in that day. So many of us characterize them, caricature them as, as these horrible villains. But if we were living in Jesus' day and age, we would think very differently about the Pharisees. In, in that day, so Rome was the, the empire, the power, and in response to Rome's power, various religious groups had different responses to them. So you have the ultra-conservatives. I mean, they were so ultra-conservatives, they, they get pulled out of society. They were the Essenes, and they went off to the desert, to the wilderness, because they said, we can't even defile ourselves to interact with this sort of pagan culture. Another group were the Zealots, and they were the ones who got politically active. And they are said, we are taking down this Roman government. Then you had the Sadducees. Again, a name you probably have heard if you've read through the Gospels. The Sadducees were the liberals of the day. They were the people who sort of cozied up to the Romans and, and allowed, they were allowed access to all the in, institutions of Rome because they liberalized their faith. They got rid of things like the supernatural, any notion of it, any notion of miracles or the resurrection. They just got rid of most of the details of the law. And then you had the Pharisees. The Pharisees were really the popular party of sort of most people. And, and to catch who this group really is, we, we can simply do a factual analysis, an appraisal of who the Pharisees are. Do you know who these people are, what they believed? So the Pharisees believed in a literal understanding of the Bible. 
They were committed to the Bible. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They sought to do everything the Bible says. They believed in, in a core body of morality and they followed the law of God. They thought, this, we need to obey this. We need to live this out. They believed in right and wrong. They believed in the Ten Commandments. They prayed. They tithed. They observed the Sabbath. They went to church. Who does that sound like? <sighs> These were good church-going people who lived very carefully observed lives, and yet they were confused and confounded by Jesus. Jesus had this tendency to make room for sinners, and so they grumbled and they murmured about this acceptance that, that Jesus showed to these people who, who seemed beyond the pale. It's interesting, the word Luke uses in this parable uh, for grumbling for murmuring is the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for when the people of Israel were in the wilderness and they grumbled against Moses. They murmured against Moses. Moses was leading them throughout the wilderness. They were sort of wandering in the wilderness and they murmured against him. And that same murmuring these Pharisees are doing as Jesus leads them into new territory of grace, they feel lost in it, and so they murmur, they grumble. And it's in response to that that Jesus tells this parable. Jesus, the good shepherd, is doing spiritual surgery right there in just the telling of this parable. He's doing spiritual surgery for religious people, and he's challenging really challenging the dominant categories in which we think and conceive of God and ourselves and salvation. And he's pointing out how, how the narrowness we sometimes come to our faith with and the, and the self-righteousness that good religious people like you and I can have destroys not only our own souls, but that of so many around us. He's showing us in just one fell swoop how both religious and irreligious people are lost in need of a rescuing shepherd. So Jesus tells a simple story. It is really simple. A shepherd has a flock of 100 sheep. Comes to the end of the day. They do the regular count. They did that count several times a day. Make sure they got all the sheep around. Comes to the end of the day. Counts 98, 99. We're missing one. Leaves the flock searches out for that one lost sheep. The heart of our God, of this good shepherd we know as Jesus, is one who seeks out the lost and the least because of this divine love that fills his heart, a divine love that welcomes home all who are lost, all the prodigals. This, this compact parable really is, I think, a stunningly good analysis of the human condition. We are so prone to get lost, so easily hiding from God, so desperately in need of rescue, so needing to be found by God. It is a story of God and the human race, writ really tiny in the micro. Really, it's a, you can conceive of that story as a game of hide and seek. You know the game, right? Hide and seek. You played it as a kid or you play it with your kids. One person seeks, Everyone else gets to hide. And the seeker, what do they call the seeker? It. Not a nice name, right? You're it. 
the seeker has to close their eyes and become really vulnerable, and everyone else gets to hide. And that's part of the game, right? If you're hiding, you're sort of in control because you can hide, you can move about. And the seeker is in, in the vulnerable position of going out, looking sort of blindly, where are people, and finding them. And of course, you know, if the, the seeker cannot find everyone, or if the, the hiders aren't coming out of their hiding place, what is the call that ends the game? Ollie, Ollie, income free. Or some version of it. I heard sometimes some kids say, Ollie, Ollie, oxen free. I don't know what that's about. You know that one? I always played Ollie, Ollie, income free. The heart of the Good Shepherd is one who seeks. Today, many people who are on a spiritual journey would describe themselves as seekers. People seeking God or truth or spiritual reality. And that's a, that's a really commendable thing. But I think it's a confusion of things as well because Scripture tells us that it's God who is the seeker and is seeking out lost people. Think of Genesis 3, the very start of our story. God has created this beautiful world and in this garden, Adam and Eve and God live in this, this transparent communion where everything is open where there is community and intimacy. But of course, Adam and Eve rebel against God. Um, and what's the first thing they do when they rebel against God? They hide, right? They hide. Sin and hiding, sin and lostness go together. We often trivialize sin to be, well, you broke that rule, you broke that rule. Jesus says, no, 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 look, and I have a more radical understanding of what sin is. It is running from God. It is avoiding God. Look at the lost sheep. What is the lost sheep doing? The lost sheep is on his own, not out for a stroll, but out seeking other pastures, thinking, I don't need a shepherd. I can find this on my own. Jesus says the essence of sin is this running, this escaping from God. And that's repeated throughout Scripture. Romans 3 says no one seeks for God. No one. Then later on in the New Testament, the Old Testament actually says, Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us. I think the Bible's definition of sin is hiding from God, avoiding God, trying to get away from God, wanting to be your own Lord, your own Savior, your own Master. Do you see what that means? It means that breaking the rules or living a life of immorality is only one way to escape God. But keeping them is quite another I've been reading Flannery O'Connor this week, and uh, in, she has stunningly in-your-face stories. And in one story, Wise Blood, there is an unforgettable line. And one of the main characters, uh, Hazel Motes, was, was a lost sheep and trying to escape from God. And in this story, he has this realization, and it reads this, there was already a wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. The way to avoid Jesus, the way to hide from God is to avoid sin, to be good. I was, I was speaking to someone this past week who, uh, they would call themselves an agnostic. It was a fascinating conversation we had. They were intrigued that I was a pastor and that there were Christians around. And uh, so we had a great conversation about faith and about God and the heart of Christianity um, 
His idea of Christianity was like so many other people. He said, it's really about being good, isn't it? I'm a good person. God will get me into heaven, won't he? And even though he considered himself an agnostic, he had absorbed this common understanding of what religion is all about. It's about being good. It's about being my own savior and really avoiding God. God, I'm being a good person. Don't bother me. Leave me alone. Some people repent of, of really flagrant sins that mess up their lives and mess up other people's lives, and that's a good thing. But others of us need to repent of the sin of self-righteousness. Nothing, I got to tell you, nothing can separate us from God like the thinking you are righteous, that you are so good you don't need God. Can you see yourself there as that sort of lost person? If we don't have a hunch of our lostness, you know what? We are doubly lost because, first of all, we don't know we're lost, and secondly, we can't see it that we are. And as long as we pretend that we're righteous, that we don't need to repent, that we're not lost, we are never going to grow and mature because we've been put outside of God's work, because God, the growth in us is always God's work in us. We put ourselves outside of the boundaries of God's work because of our religious competency. It gets in the way of the Savior's work. Our lost condition is our running, our hiding from God. And isn't, isn't this our story? I mean, so many of us would probably tell stories about how we hide. We hide from God because we're afraid of being exposed. And when we get exposed, we feel like whatever is there, the truth of who we are is not going to be loved if we're ever found out. And so we hide. And so we stay stuck in our lostness. But what does God do? God seeks. In Genesis, go back there again. What does God do when Adam and Eve are hiding? He seeks them out. He goes walking through the garden in search of them. You know, and then he asks, Adam, where are you? Does he not know? Of course God knows where they are. God will allow us to stay in hiding if we wish. It's only his love that draws us out of hiding. And ever since Adam and Eve, God has been the one seeking out his lost people. And so this parable is just another addition. Jesus is saying, this is who God is. He is seeking his lost sheep people who are skilled at hiding. And this includes both religious people who are in church, good church people like us, and all the irreligious people, the bad people, the people like we to demonize. It is the story of this divine love that seeks out lost people. And there is such powerful truth here in, 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 in packed in this parable. Think of it. Why does the shepherd seek out sheep? He has 99 safe sheep. That's a pretty good deal. Okay, I lost one. Why will he risk everything, his own life, because there's dangers out there, risk the rest of the flock, and go for that one sheep? Why does God search out? Because you are a treasure to God. Why do you search for anything if you lose something? Because it's a value to it, right? So many of us lose our iPhones. I do all the time. I search that thing out. 
Jesus says we have a God who values us so much, who loves us so that he has bound up his joy with ours to such a degree that he will risk it all to seek us out. Do you see the value this communicates about who you are? You don't get that sort of valuation of yourself anywhere else. Seriously, in our culture around us, right, the common conviction or the common worldview of our culture is that there is no God, pretty standard, and also that this world we live in, it's a material world, that's all there is, and so if there is no God and the world is just a material existence, your life is pretty insignificant, right? Everything you do, every deed you do, it is insignificant. Your deepest emotions are simply neurochemicals at work. Your most profound thoughts and insights, that is just biologically determined. You are a hunk of matter. And there's no reason, no rational reason for saying you're more important than a rock based on that worldview. And yet no one lives like it, right? We're compelled to see other humans as as valuable. Our culture's secular worldview is so conflicted. It's really incredible. We're a culture obsessed with self-identity, with with self-esteem, with individual rights. All our schools emphasize that message. You're valuable. You know, you're important. But on what basis? On what basis? If our cultural worldview says there's no God, if our beginning is just a random accident, if our end is just a fading into blackness, how can you say human lives are significant in any way? How can you handle that contradiction? Talk about a leap of faith, a leap of darkness. Christianity does not demand that sort of intellectual leap. If you're a secular person today, Christianity will never demand that kind of intellectual division. Jesus tells us here clearly we are people of such utter value to God. Today, friends, you can know there is a God and that the only I in the universe sees you with delight. The only person that counts sees you with such care and delight, even in your lostness. The Christian story tells us that out of love, Jesus gave his life. He risked it all for you and I, dying on the cross so that we might know the fullness of life. We're only loved out of our lostness and hiding. The temptation for for us religious, righteous people is is to believe that somehow I I can be argued out of the anxiety and fear of my hiding. You know, no matter how many rational arguments we can put forward, you will only be loved out of that fear, out of hiding. One of the sweetest joys of knowing God as shepherd comes when you discover not only that God is your shepherd, but that you are a sheep worth risking all to seek out. When the voice of the shepherd breaks through the mess of lostness and we find ourselves as the beloved because God so cherishes each one, seeks us out even in our brokenness and lostness. And the parable ends in joy, right? The shepherd comes back. I found my sheep. Come, let's celebrate. The lost sheep is brought back and then Jesus makes a wider connection. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, than over 99 righteous that need no repentance. Now think of that. Has there ever been anyone who needed no repentance? Seriously, is there anyone here who just, no, I'm good, got no need for repentance? No. Which means all of us are that one. All of us 
are that shepherd, that sheep that the shepherd is out seeking. But what does it mean for us to repent? So that sheep needs to repent. For many people, repentance comes from, I don't know, this guilt we feel as our sins are judged, right? Throughout my preaching career, I've been doing this, I don't know what, 20, 25 odd years, I often have people in the church who always ask me, can you preach more on sin and judgment and guilt? I I get that often, frequently. One preacher, Craig Barnes, says these are bad dog sermons. People, he says, people want me to stand in front of the pulpit and wag my finger and say to them, bad dog, look at what you did, bad dog. Is that how we understand repentance? Bad dog. And why do good religious people want that? Want that judgment? Very often because that's all we've known. We've been judged since we were born from teachers and coaches and bosses and friends and siblings, even from the person we see in the mirror. The verdict we hear again and again is you're not good enough. But repentance, conversion to the gospel of Jesus Christ is so different. It's an entirely different verdict. Because as Paul says in Romans, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That is not a bad dog sermon. It is the kindness of the generosity, the hospitality of God that leads us to repentance. The good news that leads to repentance is that Christ has taken our verdict of not good enough on the cross and the verdict, the judgment that comes from God to us through the cross is you are accepted. You are loved. All is forgiven. Ali, ali, income free. Come home think, since we're thinking about repentance, think for a minute about the Apostle Paul's repentance, his conversion. Jesus is here talking to a bunch of Pharisees, right? Think about the ultimate Pharisee, Saul as he was known, but later Paul, the most famous Pharisee in his conversion. What happened when Saul met Jesus? Most conversion stories go something like this. I was living such a bad life. Oh, my life was so low. I was so bad. And then I met Jesus. Saul, who was renamed Paul, how does his conversion story go? I was faultless in my religion. I was blameless under the law, and then I met Jesus. There are two types of conversions we can experience. The nature of Paul's repentance. Paul acknowledged that when he met Jesus, he found out he was more lost than he ever thought and yet he found out there was more to God than he ever knew. That is what conversion is. That is what repentance is. Finding out there is far more to God than you ever dared hope or believe. That God is so much bigger and more gracious and generous than you ever dared hope. He is more forgiving than you could ever imagine, more compassionate, more gracious than we could conceive. How much greater is God than the God we think we have? And until you see that, until you see that there's more to God than you know, you're not going to change. Conversion comes where there is this change of vision about who God is when you see that there is so much to God in His grace. So will you be found by that God today? Will you be found by that grace? Will you open your heart to see your need for rescue 
That's a hard thing to do. It is to say, I'm lost. I need help. But here's the thing. You do need to participate in your being found, which is a really interesting thing. There is a lost art to being found by God. We participate in it. When a sheep gets lost, it listens for the shepherd. You know, when it finally, it wanders off and finally knows, I'm in trouble, I'm lost, it sort of gets freaked out. And what it does when it knows, I'm lost, I'm in trouble, it starts bleating out. And when it hears the call of the shepherd, that bleat of distress gets louder, which is a signal for the shepherd. There's my lost sheep. So there's this participation. We need to respond to what Jesus, to Jesus, the, the God who is seeking out. Jesus is calling out wherever you are in your lostness. Jesus is calling out to you. We cannot make it out of our hiding, our lostness on our own. We need to be sought out. And Jesus is seeking. So will you, will you respond to that salvation he offers? Will you get found? To all of us who are lost and in hiding, all of us who need to be found, which is all of us. God has spoken in Jesus Christ. Ali, Ali, income free. The time for hiding is over. The time to come home is here. No more penalties, no shame, no condemnation. It's time to get found already. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you are the great shepherd of the sheep. Thank you for the beauty, the mystery, the wonder of who you are. God, we pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, bring about some fresh conviction of us today. For some of us who, who aren't entirely sure, we're lost, would you gently come to us and help us understand and know some of the truth, the real truth of our story. May we see our need for you. And may we be a community like that, God, a community where we are not shocked by tax collectors or sinners who show up because we recognize we are a community of sinners, broken people, but a community where we know deeply enough the grace of God, where we can be open about that, where we need not hide that, or, or cover it over, paper it over with any religiosity, but where we can be honest and truthful with one ourselves. A community of grace where we love each other and care for one another and pick each other up and hold each other accountable and, and continue to move us on following the good shepherd. God, make us that beautiful community. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.